Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 27th, 2020. I hope you are still somewhat excited for the 2020 season. After the opening weekend, even though the results may have popped the enthusiasm balloon for some White Sox fans, after losing two out of three to the Minnesota Twins, the series loss might be more painful than just falling behind in the standings. We'll discuss the possible injury impacts from this past weekend, but the White Sox have to press on as they make their way to Cleveland to start an eight-game road trip that will include stops at Kansas City and Milwaukee. What should we expect from the Cleveland Indians? Well, our old friend Matt Lyons of Let's Go Tribe will join us to give us the intel on Cleveland's stout starting pitching and the new faces in their lineup. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. For those that live in Chicago, we are getting used to having our temperatures checked visiting restaurants, gyms, or bars. So let's take our temperature after this first weekend. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And Jim, I asked the fans the following on Twitter how they are feeling after the opening weekend. Great? Okay, not worried. I'm worried a little bit. Or it's time to panic. Which option best describes how you feel after the opening weekend regarding the White Sox? I would say I'm worried a little bit, but not necessarily for things the White Sox can control. I am in the same boat. I'm also worried a little bit. And with the poll results so far, we've had over 600 votes. 
That is the most popular category. 58% of the people on Twitter, which you could follow us on Twitter again at socks machine. You could follow me at socks machine underscore Josh. 58% are, I'm worried a little bit. 33%. Okay. I'm not worried. 7%. It's time to panic and 2% still feel great. So that's good. At least there's still some optimism after the weekend. But I'll start with you, Jim. Why are you worried a little bit, especially about the things that are outside the White Sox control? Well, when you watch developments around the league, like our old friend Matt Davidson tested positive for COVID-19, and that seemed to shake up the Reds a little bit. And then you have Miami, which had to alter its travel plans. And um, Don Mattingly talked about how different it is going on the road. Uh, as opposed to the nice little training bubble that teams had, and even though Florida is you know right now dealing with COVID in a in a in a big way, uh, he said that everybody just felt safer in Miami. They had their own setup in Marlins Park. They had their own homes. They didn't have hotels, you know, airports, uh, you know, areas that they just weren't you know, that they weren't used to, and, and, and had a you know everything at their convenience. And uh, Jose Urania. Uh, tested positive, and so they're going to be delaying when they get back to Marlins Park to better assess uh, where their team is and how many tests have turned back positive and such. So as the White Sox go on and they travel for the first time, that's where I think I'm a little worried just because, you know, you have you have the depth being tested for reasons like, you know, Reynaldo Lopez uh, leaving his start with a shoulder injury, but then you have just this great unknown of traveling. And so uh, I'm worried just, you know, that uh, this is going to be profoundly disruptive to a lot of teams uh, that you're going on the road for the first time and just encountering what it's like to play baseball in pandemic times when they don't have everything set up the way they like. And you speaking of Matt Davidson, so Matt Davidson plays opening day, test positive. Mike Moustakis and Nick Senzel both have to be taken out of the lineup on Sunday because now they have tested positive for coronavirus. The Reds, despite an outstanding start by Trevor Bauer, lose on Sunday and they lose their opening season series against the Detroit Tigers. And I am wondering if that is going to be a series, especially in a tight NL Central race, that is what we are expecting to be tight. If they look back at that opening series and really question like, man, if they need an extra game, losing two to Detroit at home could come back and bite them. And a big reason is that they didn't have two of their starters in the lineup. And with Miami, it's just not one starting pitcher. They have three position players that are also have tested positive for coronavirus. So they got three starting players plus a starting pitcher out Atlanta, before they even played opening day, uh, they lost Tyler Flowers and their other catcher, so they had to go straight to their third-string catcher uh, for the weekend. And also Don Manley, I think he's already stumping Jim that the three-man taxi squad is not enough players. Like, they're going to need more players than just the three guys that follow with them. In the instance that you suddenly lose four players from your starting lineup or starting rotation, I understand where he's coming from, and... Yeah, it's we're going to learn in these next couple of days on how the situation is for the White Sox heading to Cleveland. But we're already starting to see it. Here come the waves of the undisclosed visits to the injury list 
Uh, and then, uh, yeah, Justin Verlander too, uh, unrelated, you know, not related to COVID, right. but just, uh, you had a forearm strain. So you have Lopez and Verlander out. And then that made me think Michael Kopech probably made the right decision. Probably did. And let's talk about Ronaldo Lopez because I'm also worried a little bit. So Jim and I are right now in the, I'm worried a little bit. So don't feel left out 58 percenters. And for me, it is the starting pitching staff fueling the worry and starting with Ronaldo Lopez, Scott Merkin of MLB.com tweeted this out uh, while Lopez spoke to the media after the game. And this is a quote from Lopez. Lopez said, quote, the pain was increasing with every pitch. It was becoming more difficult with every pitch, end quote. The Chicago White Sox are reporting its right shoulder tightness for Lopez, but we'll know in the upcoming days what the end result is. And Jim, we unfortunately know well Shoulder ailments for White Sox pitchers. This is one of those situations where you hope for the best, but you expect the worst. With Lopez out for the foreseeable future, where do the White Sox go from here to plug the gap in the starting rotation? Well, we did see Gio Gonzalez on Lopez's throw day. So I think right now that's, that's the most logical place to go is go with Gonzalez. And, you know, he didn't look that impressive against the Twins, but, you know, maybe... It's hard for any pitcher to look all that impressive against the Twins. So maybe, you know, when the, uh, you know, the schedule rolls over to weaker opponents, you, you take a look at Gonzalez and see what he has. That's probably where I go first with the idea that maybe he can only go three to four innings and then have a, you know, maybe like a Jimmy Lambert type who can throw multiple innings from the right side and turn around the lineup a little bit. I think that's probably how I would go first, but then have, you know, it, consider your, you know, the Dane Dunning part of the roster or, you know, Ross Detweiler pitch while well, he's another guy who can probably go three innings if it's a favorable lineup and then turn, uh, you know, turn the lineup around with another guy with different handedness. So probably mix and match at this point, see where Lopez is at. But yeah, the shoulder is, is never great. And, you know, he's had a history before, or at least the, I think it was his rookie season when he had a back injury and he tried pitching through it. And Jose Abreu basically had to uh, tell him to, uh, you know, own up to it. You know, there's no glory and pitching, you know, pitching through something that can, you know, just be worse with every pitch. And, and there's no uh, benefit to gutting through it. Like, you know, on the second or the first series of the of the season, the third game, when you have so much season left, there's, you know, there's really no benefit for it. So hopefully it's just, you know, maybe, um, you know, like the spring training dead arm thing where he just couldn't get it going and eventually bounce back. But yeah, it's not great. And considering Lopez basically needs all of his fastball to succeed, um, you know, him throwing topping out 94 when his breaking stuff isn't that great and his, his changeup is, is merely okay. It's like, it's not a great recipe for him. His last two fastballs were 91. Yeah. And that's just when, you know, things are not going well. He started at 94, 93, and then the last two fastballs, 91. And that's when he threw the glove on the ground and uh, looked like he was in pain. Again, we're, I'm hoping for the best. I'm sure there's going to be a visit to the injured list, and Lopez is not going to be available for the White Sox for a couple of weeks. But again, the White Sox have had terrible luck with shoulder injuries to, to starting pitchers, Jim. And like, we always remember John Danks, Jake Peavy ripped the shoulder muscle off the bone. Well, that was the lat, so it oh, wasn't quite shoulder, yep, but... Um, but not even, elbow, <laughs> but you know, the guy is going to be making his first start in 2020 and his first start with the white Sox in quite some time, Carlos Rodon. He had shoulder issues that eventually he tried to work through and rehab through. And then 
All of a sudden, the tendon in his elbow gave out, and then he needed Tommy John surgery. And we haven't seen Carlos Rodon make a start for the White Sox since 2018. Uh, so, again, I'm hoping for the best, but expect the worst when it comes to shoulder injuries, just to be prepared for all all results. But no matter what you think about as far as Ronaldo Lopez, he's someone that I thought physically the White Sox could count on Jim to eat some innings in the starting rotation, and now they're not going to have him for a while. And I agree with you. I'm expecting Gio Gonzalez to fill the need, and the White Sox try to go with a few pitchers. Uh, You can do that in the first couple of weeks with the 30-man roster, but as you start trimming down to 28 and then eventually 26 guys, after the first month of the season, you're going to want someone that you can count on to go five or six innings in that spot. Yeah, I'm curious when you mentioned 30-man roster shrinking down you, you, with, with Mattingly advocating for a larger taxi squad. I wonder if they're going to change their mind on that. I, they're not going to have an option. I, it is clear to me, since baseball is not going to be canceling any games when you have coronavirus positive tests like this, especially for a team like the Marlins who had four of them. They're not going to cancel games because we gave you a roster of 60 players. Figure it out. Find whatever healthy players you have out of your 60-man roster to continue to press on and play these games because the teams and the league need money, and you need money too, players. So continue to press on. That's my expectation on how the league is going to handle this moving forward. And I do think that the league has to... Listen to Don Manley here, Jim, and expand it to at least five players where, sure, one guy's a catcher, but give teams two or three pitchers to travel with the team just in case. Yeah, I, I think you, know, you could see the 30-man roster being carried through the entire season or maybe 28 uh, just to expand that. Maybe it's that's the equivalent of a five-man taxi squad is having two more guys than he expected for the rest of the season, plus the three guys, or I could see the case where, you know, if, if teams are really waylaid, you know, it affecting how they, you know, manage the 40 man roster, or is it a 45 man roster or, or, or are you know, players in the 60 man roster eligible and, and, you know, service time is, a, is attributed to them and so forth, but they aren't quite 40 man guy. You know, just, I could see some things being made up. I mean, they decided where the blue Jays are going to play at the last minute. They added, postseason teams at the last minute so I can see them messing with the roster sizes and roster eligibility rules as the season goes along just to, as you mentioned to make these games work uh, hell or high water the other concern is that Aloy Jimenez ran into the left field wall again Jim and got himself hurt yep um, scary situation and I, I hope it's not a concussion because concussions they're never minor I've talked about it on this show, but if you are new to the show, I've had five concussions all while playing football. It is not a fun experience. And even though somebody may say, oh, he's got a minor concussion, the effects of the concussion can be lingering. Uh, So hopefully Aloy Jimenez is okay and he was just shaken up and the White Sox and he decided that it was not worth him being in a game that was nine to nothing in the second inning. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah. Um, But if, if again, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. If Jimenez is out for a lengthy period, now you have both Adam Engel and Nicky Delmonico needed to play in the outfield gym. Yep. (laughs) Yes. It's, uh, 
Yeah, it's the White Sox have a way, you know, I'm just thinking back to, you know, uh, last couple of years with like Dylan Covey and Dylan Covey was the guy the White Sox could never get away from, you know, even if they added a couple of guys in the offseason or if they, you know, um, had a bullpen or, or they, they expected some prospects to come up and eventually usurp them. It's like with Covey, just like the veteran starters didn't work out. Uh, Rodon got hurt. Dunning got hurt. Lambert got hurt. Some other, you know, they didn't have any other, you know, uh, prospects, mid-level prospects really ascending. So they had to go back to Covey just as they sent him down to get him ready for relief work. He needs to be a starter again. And he always comes back and people just uh, equate him with a bad time, even though it's not necessarily his fault. And I think Delmonico is kind of going the same way. And I mean, I, I wrote about it at... Uh, uh, at Sox Machine, just talking about how, you know, it's it's a weird situation right now for the season being the first week of the season, but also late July with 60 games left. And it's a pennant race, and it's also the first week. And so you have this tension of trying to get guys' feet uh, feet wet uh, and, and get them involved and, and part of the team and seeing pitches and, and getting innings. And it, the way a manager always gets the roster rotated through the first week just to make them part of the team. But then you also have the case where like Delmonico two games in is, you know, there are no fans booing, but I think fans are trying to boo or make their boos heard uh, from the outside. Uh, and it reminds me of like, you, know, you have these situations like Dwayne Wise in, in 2009 where he gets booed on opening day for going over four and striking out three times just because it was such a bad idea to bat him lead off in the first place. And that's where I think Del, you know, Delmonico is, is just like, it's a bad idea that he's playing. He kind of has to be playing because above him, Nomar Mazzara got hurt. And below him, you know, they're they're holding Nick Magical down, and they're, um, you know, Luis Basabe got hurt during uh, during training camp, and you know, Luis Gonzalez was up with the team, but he's not somebody who's going to contribute. So they're just kind of stuck, you know, until he gets crowded out by numbers. But then, as you mentioned, Jimenez gets hurt, and so now it's Delmonico and Engel. I, I guess the good thing is that Engel has looked good mm-hmm. uh, this spring and, and summer, and and then also the you know, the part time actually got three hit game on Sunday. That's great. Uh, he's definitely doing what he can to change minds but yeah just uh once you think like okay we'll have uh angle out there instead of delmonico now it's you know not either or it's both you know until magical comes up and you know part of me wonders that you know with this you know yeah you know, part of it is service time manipulation and and magical just you know holding them down for the extra year another part of it i think is just uh I mean, maybe teams that aren't the Royals, you know, want to just see what the season looks like before they call up a guy and put him on the 40-man roster uh, and before they can change their minds. And then that's when you're watching these uh, COVID cases come up and watching like the first road experience happen with some teams and seeing how they react to it and seeing how, uh, you know, how uncomfortable they are. It makes me wonder, okay, so maybe they just don't want to usher in that new era yet when everything is so uncertain. So that's one thing that changed my mind, I think, between writing that Delmonico post on, on Saturday and being like, you know, you know, Nick Madrigal should be up and then seeing these t- positive test results and saying, uh, maybe teams should wait a couple weeks, see how they handle their first road trip and then make their strong mm. roster moves. That That's one thing that came to mind. I never thought about that. So are you suggesting that it's a possibility, maybe not necessarily what Rick Hahn is doing, but it sounds like it's dipping your toe in the swimming pool to see if the water is warm enough to cannonball in. Yeah, I, I think it's you know a byproduct or like a you know, maybe silver lining or just like a um, you know uh, an unintended consequence of not having him on the forty man roster right now is just being able to go through a road trip, see what happens, see who you know yeah you know, 
God forbid, you know, multiple people, one person tests positive or multiple people do like what's happened with the Reds and, and, and Marlins. But I think you maybe just get through that first road trip and see where you are, who's testing, you know, or who's coming back with anything, who's under the weather, who's hurt. And then when, with the next homestand, then maybe making your permanent roster moves. Got it. Okay. I can, I can somewhat buy that. I like that might be a realistic possibility with Rick Hahn and the White Sox. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I would still say service time first, but yeah, especially watching Del Monaco's oh, sure. first couple of games. But, but I think like, uh, you know, maybe this is me trying to rationalize or, or trying to not be patently unhappy about uh, this particular roster development. But this is one benefit I can see is that, you know, we'll see how the White Sox fare on the road trip. And, and you know, if if something happens like on the, on the on the worst end of the spectrum, like we've seen so far, is at least you have players who are, you know, more or less ready for this moment down in Schaumburg, ready to go. Another reason why I am a little bit worried right now is Rick Renteria. I'm not calling for his head. But as you wrote about this topic again on Sunday regarding Nick, Nicky Delmonico, and I agree with you, Jim, about the premise of Nicky Delmonico. We don't know what he does well. We know what he doesn't do well. And man, he definitely looked outclassed this weekend. But yet, here's Rick Renteria putting Delmonico second in the order. I mean, it's one thing, Jim, to have Nicky Delmonico playing with Nomar Mazar out. I understand why Delmonico's in the lineup. But what is Renteria trying to accomplish in giving Delmonico more plate appearance opportunities than Luis Robert? That I don't know. I mean, like, I know with Robert, you know, given it's his first series in the majors, that I understand the the desire to put him in the bottom half of the order, as exciting as he may be, just not putting any pressure on him, not making him see pitches if he's not somebody who's accustomed to working the the count and and, and uh, you know waiting out. You know, not in this case they'd be doing hit and run with him, but just you know, just all the we've seen before when guys are put in the first spot or the second spot, and if, depending on how managers are with messaging and so forth, that. People be uh, people are compelled to feel like they need to do something, whether it's take extra pitches, whether it's need to give themselves up. Um, you know, some people don't look comfortable, which is why with Larry Garcia, I've always just kind of appreciated that he is who he is. He's uh, his his approach to uh, you know going to the plate is I got to be me. So if even if he's a leadoff guy, he's he's going to walk twenty times a year, and he'll still you know he'll he'll try to hit two seventy or better and and score runs that way. But it's just he doesn't let it get to him, and he ends up being like a productive bench player and good for him. Uh, but we've seen other guys like Yohan Makata express uh, discomfort with it and maybe bunt when he shouldn't, and so forth. So I can see the urge to have Robert batting that low, and that doesn't bother me. I think that's just a personal decision. First week of the season, fine. Um, you know, given how well he's handling it, I think he can be moved up pretty soon, but I, I don't mind that decision. But yeah, Delmonico uh, second when he could bat Eloy there or something. And just, yeah, cause I think Eloy's mm-hmm. a guy who just like, he's, he's not going to bunt. <laughs> he's not going to hit the, you know, he's not going to do it. He's, he's going, yeah, he, uh, he's somebody who uh, will call a homer for himself before the game. Like he just, he trusts himself. He knows who he is. You know, he's not going to be weirded out by, hitting behind a runner or anything or trying to. So that's why I, I think like just put him at the second spot, you know, Anderson, you know, just front load it with the guys who are, uh, you know, proven major league hitters one way or another between, you know, Anderson, well, Moncada was out, but you have, uh, and I think it's fair to sit Moncada just, you know, for his health and, and, 
you know, getting him acclimated to playing every day, that's fine. But, you know, when you have, um, you know, you have Larry, who's, you know, <laughs> knows how to handle himself. Anderson, uh, Jimenez, Abreu, Encarnacion, Grandal. You have like six guys who can bat in those top six spots and, and be okay with it. So that's why I just, I, I did not get that. Even like Grandal's second would be, you know, an interesting use of his on base percentage before, um, you know, the heart of the order. There are a lot of ways it can go. Delmonico, there's, it's, uh, it reminds me of just the the worst managing we've seen from you know Ozzy Robin <laughs> to Renneria, just where it's just uh, uh, formulaic um, templates of players uh, that they just slap there, and they have no respect for that spot. You know, you look on the other end uh, or on the other side of the field, Josh Donaldson's batting second because that's the uh, I forget what they uh, there was a, a spot that uh, Aaron Gleeman was using right for the Twins, but it was basically just like that's the power spot or that's like the impact spot. Uh, the, the, the spot in the order that can do the most damage based on um, number of plate appearances and possibility of people being on base in front of him. And to put Delmonico there when Donaldson's there on the other side just shows how far behind the White Sox are in thinking, at least on that particular day. Yeah, I just don't think it's going to be this day. Like, if this yeah. is going to be a trend throughout the season, Renteria is going to lose me. Like, I, again, I get it. You have to play Delmonico until Nomar Mazzara comes back. But Nicky Delmonico needs about eighth or ninth. Okay. He is not one of your top hitters. And uh, if he, I just felt like he was trolling White Sox fans on Sunday, Jim, by the, the, the switcheroo of the lineups being announced. Uh, and then here's Nicky Delmonico batting second. And again, Nicky Delmonico doesn't provide any impact offensively for the White Sox. He had some good contact as far as in foul territory he fouled <laughs> off a lot of pitches jason nix but the the ball's in play not impressive just just not impressive yeah topped out at 93 miles per hour in the grounder but yeah everything else has been like in the 70s or below and um you know they he had the long at bats and the battling he had a 13 pitch at bat and a 10 pitch at bat but it reminds me of you know you've seen a number of players do this like yonder alonzo last year and todd frazier a couple years before where you know, they foul off a lot of pitches, and in Frazier's cases, that turned into more walks than he ever drew, but he was also not putting pitches that he should have put in play. You know, not, not, you know sliders over the plate, fastballs, middle-middle, just fouling them back, ripping them foul, not being able to put the barrel on the ball. You know, the barrel's not in the zone when it needs to be, whether it's timing or whether it's bat speed, uh, it was not there. Uh, getting beat on, you know, okay fastballs like a Kenta Maeda fastball which is okay it's not great you know, his his approach is more based on his uh, changeup and and slider and the fastball is just a good uh, pitch to get them off that but he was late on those fastballs late on sliders fouling them back to the left side and uh, yeah when he put them in play 70 miles per hour pops to the left uh, grounders to the right the Dan- Daniel Polka profile <laughs> that's what Polka did last year uh, could not lift the ball to the pole field even on hittable pitches they filled up the zone uh, he was exposed and now he's going to uh, the KBO, it seems. So it's just, uh, we've seen this number of times before. And so when I see those long at bats and I see, you know, Benetti is talking about, oh, he's battling and see it on, you know, the, the praise for it. When you see what he's not putting in play, like it, it's one thing if he's, you know, falls behind 0-2 on two tough pitches and then is in battle mode and gets the 13 pitch at bat that way. But in that 3-0 or, or that 13 pitch at bat he had, it was right. a 3-0 count. Yes. <laughs> they had to come back and get him and he could not take yeah. advantage of it. So I think, uh, 
when you know he has a three zero count and the best he can do is a lengthy strikeout. That's the most uh, his most productive at bat is you know one walk and two lengthy lengthy outs. It's just that's not really that much. And you mentioned the trolling thing, and I wouldn't rule it out just because Renteria said it before that he doesn't give a bleep. I, I think I don't want to put the I think that was the expletive, <laughs> and, but he he did uh, he did drop an expletive talking about his his defensive what he wants to do. And I think part of that is defensible. Like you're sitting Moncada playing McCann over Grandall the second game. You know, that's typical first week stuff. That's fine. You know, I'm not going to get angry over that, but when the Delmonico thing is just, I think there's a line between rotating guys through getting guys feet wet, uh, making them part of the team this season versus Delmonico front and center when he may not be, when he hasn't been a major league outfielder for now three years. I'm going to be very annoyed if Nicky Delmonico is the leadoff hitter on Monday, Jim. Yeah, it's like the only <laughs> only way he can go. It's like playing high-low. <laughs> Anyways, again, that's why I'm a little bit worried. Health, pitching staff did not perform well. We'll talk about Lucas Giolito later in the show as we preview the upcoming series against Cleveland as he makes his second start. It's easy to complain, but there are good things that did happen this weekend. The offense is good. Luis Robert is awesome. And we're going to answer some questions about Luis Robert later in the show during P.O. Sox. Adam Engel, Jimenez, Mikata, Robert all had four hits this weekend. James McCann had a great game on Saturday going three for four with a home run. Lurie Garcia totally redeemed himself after a terrible performance on opening day to hit two homers the very next day. The team walked 12 times and struck out only 22 times, so they're demonstrating the ability to cut that ratio down. If anything gives me hope that the White Sox can bounce back and still be the team we think they can be this season, it's the offense. But the pitching gym is what's going to keep me up at night, especially in the first couple of weeks of this season. Yeah, uh, you know, we talked about, uh, we made a big deal about the home run deficit. You know, you wrote about the home run problem. We talked at length about the home run deficit between the Twins and the White Sox. After three games, it's, you know, for, for better or for worse, it's 7-7. Seven, seven. So they've, uh, you know, they, they hit seven homers, which is great. They gave up seven homers, which is, yeah, <laughs> it's not good. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, seeing that they can go toe for toe. And I watched a lot of video uh, this, uh, especially on Saturday, of the uh, uh, Russian face slapping competitions, uh, which I embedded the video of in the, in the Saturday recap where just two you know, or huge guys with thick necks in Siberia just stand across the table and slap each other in the face as hard as they can. <laughs> and uh, I think the twins are like the team with a thicker neck right now. Like, you, you know, they can, you can hit them hard. Um, you know, their pitching isn't great. Uh, they have some weaker spots in the rotation, especially with Rich Hill is uh, iffy. Uh, they can be hit, but they can hit back and, 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 and with more authority. And uh, I think uh, Jake Cave put it uh, in a postgame uh, uh, Q&A session. He said that, uh, you know, the White Sox are good. Uh, we're better. And I think that's fair, you know, especially given the uh, uh, records from uh, last year and the home run disparity and everything like that. Like, that's a fair thing. The White Sox are improved. They can they have a, they're more equipped to stand toe to toe with them, but they're probably going to get knocked down uh, more often than than not. So let's talk about the upcoming opponent for the Chicago White Sox, which is completely different than Minnesota. Maybe the best starting rotation in the American League and an offense that's got a few bats and a lot of question marks. It's the Cleveland Indians that are next in the White Sox schedule, and we'll preview that series coming up 
on the podcast after the break as we are joined by our old friend Matt Lyons from Let's Go Tribe to get intel on the Indians. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Order shipments? Check. Virtual meeting? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. The White Sox begin their eight-game road trip by first visiting Cleveland. The Indians won their first series at home against the Kansas City Royals and are currently tied for first place after the first weekend of the 2020 season with the Minnesota Twins and Detroit Tigers. Exactly how we all thought it would be. Join us to give us insight on the next White Sox opponent is the managing editor of Let's Go Tribe, the Cleveland Indians blog, part of SB Nation, and our old friends, it's Matt Lyons. And hello, Matt. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk some baseball with you. So let's start with what I think is a, is a bigger issue surrounding Cleveland, and especially in light of Washington changing its football team name. How much longer do you think we're going to be calling the Cleveland baseball team the Indians? I would hope it wouldn't be more than this year. I would hope they saw what happened with um, the Washington football team, which is that if they drag their feet enough, it'll eventually come down to sponsors putting pressure on them and Nike removing all your stuff. And that sort of, weirdly enough, makes you act a little faster. But I would like to imagine Cleveland could get get it done a little quicker than that. I know they said that um, uh, they had closed door meetings with the the players and management, and they're going to talk to Native American leaders just to sort of do it the right way and move away from the name. Um, and even like Francisco Lindor and the rest of the Indians, they, they had a plan on opening day where they wore their, what are technically away jerseys that just said Cleveland instead of Indians, um, to sort of send a message that they're ready for some kind of change to happen. So I don't imagine they'll do it in the middle of the season, but I'd like to think that they're pretty, pretty well underway into realizing they need to change the name. And hopefully by next year, we'll be calling them something else. Do you have a preference on what you would like the next name to be for the Cleveland baseball team? Um, I don't it, I don't know. It's hard because there's not a whole lot, I think, of great names that are specifically Cleveland-related. Um, even our, some of our Let's Go Tribe staff have suggested Cleveland Baseball Club. I don't love that one a whole lot. Um, it's kind of it's kind of neat, I guess. But the one I think I like the most at this point that's realistic is the Cleveland Guardians hmm. because they have a statue guarding um, – there's a, a bridge in Cleveland that has four statues that are um, – like these big, they're just guardian statues that were made a while ago. Um, they're technically guardians of traffic. They all each have little um, different vehicles for, I think it's like, in the, they're all, there's like some trains, cars, but it's just a neat little thing that ties it to Cleveland. I think that's not related to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm really good with, because I'm so sick of everything being associated with that one place in Cleveland. There's a lot around the city you could relate it to, but it's always just guitars and um, anything there, like those patches they wore last season were so obnoxious. Um, I mean, it's better than Chief Wahoo, but I would just prefer blank, but 
Uh, yeah, I think my the realistic option I like the best is uh, the Guardians. I think Spiders is also a really good option if they want to go that way. I don't think that one would happen just because arachnophobia is a thing, but yeah, um, either one of those is really my preference. I like the Cleveland Spiders. You could also tie it. It'd be a nice tie-in with Marvel, right? When you have yeah. Marvel oh, yeah. Night, yes, Spider-Man come to the uh, progressive field do you expect progress is progressive progressive still the main sponsor at the stadium right oh yeah i don't if um you'll see it this weekend if you're watching uh i, I believe they're playing a progressive right it's in cleveland yeah they, yeah yeah oh yeah you'll see it's i mean I, i've counted on the pitcher's mound as progressive there's at least four okay. ads that appear behind the plate <laughs> several cardboard cutouts are flow from progressive yeah they are very heavily still invested in the cleveland stadium any word from progressive like FedEx with the Washington football team adding pressure to the ownership group to change the name? No, I haven't heard anything. I, I, it mostly seems like it's um, ownership dragging their feet and there's not a whole lot of external pressure other than from the players um, pushing back on them. I mean, if progressive is hmm. putting any kind of pressure, they're doing it in a weird way by giving them a bunch of money <laughs> during the pandemic to have a bunch of ads. But um, <laughs> I, I would, I hope they would just to push them along a little further, but um, I don't know. Maybe they've already had discussions where they're saying, like, it's coming. Please don't do that. But anything that'll get it moving a little faster. All right. So on the field, Cleveland's strength is obviously starting pitching. And we saw it in action this past weekend against Kansas City. A 2 to nothing shot out on opening day as Shane Bieber was awesome. He struck out 14 in six innings. The Indians lost on Saturday, but they only allowed three runs. And on Sunday, uh, the Indians won 9-2. to So when you hold your opponent to only five runs scored over a three-game series, more times than not, you are going to win that series. And, Matt, this is in spite of Corey Kluber no longer being on the team. He's down in Texas, and he had to leave the game after the first inning. There was a lot of talk as far as with him regressing. And I'm afraid to ask this, Matt, but is this Indians rotation better without Kluber? I think it's better than what Kluber is now. I don't think it's better than the peak Indians we saw with like Kluber, Bauer, and Carrasco and everybody at their best. But I mean, the way it is now, the, the, the top three that the, the Royals unfortunately ran into for them, the Bieber, Clevenger, and Carrasco, when they're all on, I don't know how anybody's going to beat them uh, either, either in the short 60-game season or in the playoffs. Um, even the White Sox are going to see what you consider the weaker part of the rotation, but even that is uh, Cerebro Aaron Savali and Zach Plesac, who we still don't know exactly what he is, but he's he has the talent to be at least a decent three or four pitcher anywhere. Um, he's the Indians' number five starter, so they're pretty lucky there. But, I, I yeah, I think it was never a, a trade that felt good on an emotional level just because everybody loves Corey Kluber. And there was also the – there's there's no hiding it that it was a salary dump. The Indians would have had to pay him somewhere of like $18 million, and they just weren't going to do that. Um, but also if, if Emmanuel Classe didn't get suspended for PEDs, if Delano DeShields wasn't uh, out with a COVID-19 diagnosis, I think the Indians would come away looking okay in that trade. Um, I think with – like you mentioned, Corey Kluber's regression, they – they sort of saw that coming, and that combined with how much he was owed, they were just ready to to move on with the talent they have in the rotation. I think Shane Bieber has taken a, a massive leap forward. We all thought he was going to be pretty good, but he's turned into a legitimate Cy Young candidate. So, yeah, I think they're they're in a pretty good state even without Corey Kluber. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I have a 10 to 1 ticket on Shane Bieber winning the American League Cy Young Award that I put on uh, in February. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I thought then he was my dark horse pick, but now he looks like he could be the favorite. 
uh, after this weekend, especially in light of the news of Justin Verlander and his forearm strain being out a few weeks, if not for the entire season. Uh, but you mentioned as far as Aaron Savali, so let's start with him. That's who the White Sox will face first on Monday. And Savali was good for the Indians last year. In 10 starts, he had a 2.34 ERA. You couldn't ask more for that from any starting pitcher. Uh, how did Savali look during spring training 2.0 this summer, Matt? Yeah, he looked good. There wasn't anybody um, that had any major concerns in spring training, I don't think, um, even the 2.0 version. I'm, I'm pretty excited about Aaron Savali. He's just a a pretty cerebral guy. Kind of, we, we sort of call him like a mini Corey Kluber just because he's so even keel on the mound. Um, but, yeah, he's a, he's an exciting guy. He's got a ton of pitches. It's, it's hard to really gauge exactly what he's ceiling in because what his ceiling is because he uses so many pitches and he uses them so effectively. So um, it's interesting to see him against a, a team like the White Sox that's young and exciting as they are. And then Zach Plesak goes for Cleveland on Tuesday. The region kid from Crown Point, Indiana, just over the Illinois-Indiana border, uh, faced the White Sox twice last year. The first time he faced the White Sox, he was very good. He pitched seven innings and only allowed one earned run. The second time, not so good. He allowed six runs in five innings against the White Sox. What are the Indians expecting out of Plesak in 2020, Matt? I, I think he's he's pretty close to their fringe fifth starter. I don't think the plan initially was to even have him in the starting rotation, but he performed so well in spring training 2.0. Um, I think initially it was going to be Adam Plutko was the fifth starter, but um, Plesak is just a freak athlete on the mound. He's one of just the most most purely athletic pitchers as far as defending the position, and he uses that to his advantage. Um, his velocities look great. Um, he's been working a lot with Mike Clevenger, who is is a big guy on full intent, or um, what do you call it, maximum intent, and um, just getting your velocity up. And it seemed like it worked with uh, Plesak to do that as well. So I think if if Kluber was here, Plesak would be the guy that would be in the bullpen. And it might even end up that that's his, his better role at some point as a long reliever. But if they can give him a shot as a starter, I'm perfectly happy as I'm, with him as a fifth starter. I think we can see him somewhere in between the two White Sox outings that we saw. He's he's so far not consistently one way or the other, but he's got um, a really good four-seamer. He just needs to work on a secondary pitch a little better, and I think he can uh, get there with the work this season. What was his velocity at towards the end of 2019? And we didn't get any velocity readings during spring training 2.0 this summer uh, for the White Sox. I don't know if Cleveland was posting them uh, during their outings, but as far as velocity goes with Plesak, what should White Sox fans expect to see? Uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but I know he was um, he was like sort of mid-low 90s. I believe he got up to like 95, 96 in, um, in his last, uh, closer to his last spring training 2.0 start. I mean, his, it, it spiked up quite a bit from where he was he was at last year. But I'm not sure on the specifics of it. So Shane Bieber will be on the mound for the Cleveland Indians on Wednesday against Lucas Giolito, so that will be a tough night for the White Sox offense. And speaking as far as offense, again, Cleveland, we expect to be well-managed, play good defense to support what might be the best starting rotation in the American League. But the biggest question I have of the Indians, Matt, is that in 2020, will they score enough runs to support the starting rotation? Nine runs on Sunday is great, but they only scored two runs on Friday and Saturday. And White Sox fans, we, we know the big names, right? Lindor, Ramirez, Santana, these guys live in our nightmares, okay? Uh, every time the White Sox play Cleveland, these are the guys that White Sox fans are, are most afraid of. But the Indians did bring in some new faces in Cesar Hernandez, the ex-Philly second baseman, and Franmil Reyes. How did those two look in their first weekend with Cleveland? 
I think Fran Mill is still pretty much adjusting to where he is. Um, he hasn't looked great in his first couple of games, but I mean, Cesar Hernandez, he was one I didn't expect a whole lot. I know Jason Kipnis in his last couple of years, he was, he was struggling as a second baseman. I thought maybe Hernandez would be, would sort of keep that pace or maybe bump it up a little bit. But so far with the Indians, I mean, he looks great. He's, he's just so fundamentally sound in everything he does. His base running smart. Um, he plays the field really well. He's such a smooth first, second baseman. Um, I, I mean, obviously it's a super small sample size, but he's looked great even offensively so far as the leadoff guy for the Indians. So um, I think Fran Mill is still up in the air. His power is tremendous once he gets comfortable and gets into it. But uh, Cesar Hernandez, I mean, if he keeps this up in a 60-game season, he has a couple streaky places like this, he could be a really important part for the Indians. Yeah, I was kind of jealous when Cleveland signed Hernandez because the White Sox, if they needed a stopgap solution at second base with Nick Madrigal, Waiting the wings. I thought Hernandez could have been a great fit for the White Sox. Somebody that's comfortable batting leadoff, switch hitter. He has some surprising pop, but it's not a lot of home run pop, but he's just annoying. He just gets on base and he just makes things happen offensively. You can count on him defensively. Now, when you got Hernandez batting in front of Ramirez and Lindor, I mean, if you get those three rolling and then you got Santana still taking his walks. Uh, that that could be a nightmare for opposing teams. But what about the bottom half of the lineup? What kind of platoon magic should we expect to see Terry Francona to conjure this season? The the bottom of the outfield, the bottom of the uh, lineup is basically all the outfield. You can take three coins, flip them, and do whatever you want with that. It's going to be we haven't seen a, the same three outfielders in any of the first three games, and I'd imagine some of that is is just getting everybody out there and getting reps. But I don't imagine that's going to be very different. Going forward, Tyler Naquin's injured, but uh, uh, Jordan Luplo is going to be a guy where he was platoon last season, but Terry Francona seems dead set on letting him hit right-handers as well as left-handers. Um, Bradley Zimmer is a super fast outfielder who who showed a little bit of pop. He just strikes out so much that I don't know if he can stick around, but all their outfielders are these guys who are probably a third or fourth outfielder, but there's just so many of them, it's hard to know which ones to put out there. Uh, Mingo Santana had a really good offensive game, but anybody who's watched him know he cannot stick in the outfield for very long. Um they have a couple of exciting young players like Daniel Johnson, um, who they got from the Nationals for Jan Gomes. He's got some surprising power. He's coming back from a hammock injury a couple of years ago. Um, he's looked really good in spring training, both the regular one and 2.0. Um, and he got on the roster just because Tyler Aiken was injured. But I don't. It's it's so confusing what it's going to be in the outfield. I don't even know what's, if it's platoon magic at this point. It's just seeing who you can get hot for such a short season, and we're going to be seeing a lot of outfielders. So. Even if you wanted to pay me $100 to decide who would be the outfielder for the series, I don't think I could do it for any three of the games. It's going to be so different every time. Well, what about Oscar Mercado? I mean, he had you know some great series defensively against the White Sox last year. Is he one of the mainstays, at least in center field, or is he still part of this rotation that Francona is going with as far as in the outfield? I don't think there's any uh, mainstay in the outfield right now, including Oscar Mercado. I think he's probably the closest just because he played pretty well last season, even though he sort of fell off towards the end. But, um, I mean, just the fact that they have Bradley Zimmer, if they want to give him a shot, just because he has such a high ceiling somewhere, you want to try him in center field, and he's so fast. But, um, I mean, like, for instance, Oscar Mercado didn't play today, and it was just the third game of the season, so... It's just hard to really know what he's thinking out there, and maybe it'll settle down in a couple weeks, but it's hard to know with how many outfielders they have. The White Sox have seven games in Cleveland this year, so they drew the short straw on the schedule, and they won't be in Cleveland again until the final week of the season on September 21st. 
And again, the White Sox have three home games against the Cleveland Indians, and that's going to be happening next weekend uh, as far as August 7th through the 9th. Uh, so a pretty big gap for the White Sox and, and Cleveland here. Uh, you, you've got six games early, and then they don't see each other until the final week of the season. And I, I could, I, I imagine the expectation, especially with the postseason expanding to eight teams, because Cleveland was good last year, 93 wins on the outside looking in as far as the postseason. Before we let you go, Matt, what is the expectation from Cleveland Indians fans of the squad in 2020? I would think it's got to be, especially now with the expanded postseason, it's got to be they get in there and do make some kind of noise. There's no, um, I mean, let me tell you, as the White Sox right now, you guys just cherish this time that you're in where anything is exciting. Because for the Indians right now, any kind of short playoff run is just awful at this point. There's nothing short of a World Series win that would feel great. Um, everything's going to be disappointing besides getting all the way there, um, especially since after 2016 when you get that close and lose and then your same core is is left around and you're just picking pieces to it, trying to keep it alive. But I, I would think their goal right now is just to get to the postseason to get the World Series. Pretty much anything short of that is is not what they're they're really shooting for at this point, especially if this is Francisco Lindor's last year. This could be their last uh, big hurrah with this offense before they're left with a great pitching staff and a very questionable offense. So I think this is the year they really want to try to push for it. And if they're out at midseason or even close at midseason, it might be Francisco Lindor's dealt then. But other than that, I think the goal is strictly the World Series. I still have a tough time imagining Cleveland trading Francisco Lindor. Oh, man, you haven't. I just did. I, I can tell you're not a Cleveland fan because you'd just be used to it by now. This is just what happens, Josh. You, you get your superstars no, I, the I, end, I, you send them away. <laughs> I, I get it, but I, I just, like, Lindor is on another level, though, right? I mean, he's been the face of this franchise since he's been in Cleveland. I mean, okay. this, yep. yeah. I mean, I I don't know. Is he is he more important to Cleveland as far as the franchise than CC Sabathia? I I think so. Yeah, I think because just getting to that World Series put him on such a large stage that I think he he is just the face of the Indians right now more than I think CC Sabathia ever was. And there's just just how much Francisco Lindor is going to come in in the free agent market. Like three, you're talking three hundred million plus. There's just no way the Indians are going to pony up that money. I think if oh, they easy. they could have, they would have already. Right. Um, I know a few years ago, I think I think it was 2016 or maybe it was 2017, they tried to give him a seven-year, $100 million offer, and he turned that down. That's when he was before he was even as big as he is. So you know he's expecting to get every ounce that he deserves. So even if the Indians were willing to approach that number, I don't think um, Lindor would go there without getting a free agency first. And it's nothing against Lindor at all. I think he knows what he's worth, and he wants to get there and make as much as he can. Um, wherever that is, which I'm perfectly fine with. And I think that's what he's going to do. And I'm happy for him. It'd just be odd though, to see him in another uniform other than Cleveland, but that's the life in the oh, yeah. American league central. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's just like Tommy and the white Sox, man. That was the weirdest thing in the world, but somehow I got used to that. And I was on the twins. And then, and, yeah. The twins. And then he just has a statue outside of Cleveland. So I don't even know. Anymore. <laughs> well, for news and analysis about the Cleveland Indians, make sure to visit let's go tribe.com. They do wonderful work. And it's always my first stop trying to learn more about the white Sox rival. You can follow them on Twitter at let's go tribe and follow Matt too. He's at Matt R L Y and Matt. It was great to catch up and thank you so much for coming on the Sox machine podcast. You too, Josh. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, Jim and I break down the upcoming series, looking at the White Sox perspective. 
When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Jim comes back on the show, and as we left off earlier in the show, uh, I hope Dylan Cease and Carlos Rodon helped the starting rot- rotation right the ship against a less powerful Indians lineup. As the pitching problems for the White Sox this series against Cleveland, Monday and Tuesday are 6.10 p.m. Central Time starts, not 7 o'clock games. Again, they're on the Eastern time zone. So 6.10 p.m. Central Time for Monday and Tuesday. Monday, it's Dylan Cease. Tuesday, it's Carlos Rodon. Wednesday at 5.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Lucas Giolito. And Jim, what are we hoping to see from Dylan Cease and Carlos Carlos Rodon for their first starts in 2020. Well, you know, my, my cop-out answer, five innings, but when it comes to uh, just, you know, more specifically, I think Cease, you know, it would be really nice if we saw what he showed at, you know, spring training and summer camp. And spring training, he had the, you know, the start with the unprecedented fastball command he'd never showed before, being able to dot low and away, uh, a spot he could physically not reach last year. He was just dotting over and over and over again. Then when it came to like the next time through the order, he was starting to expand to the other side and then his start was over because he's only working uh, three innings. But then, you know, his start uh, during summer camp when he was throwing, showing his curveball command and, you know, he was shaping it for strikes. He was throwing put away pitches. Like he was just, he said it was the best he he'd ever commanded his breaking stuff. He had both the slider and the curveball working, which you know, thinking back to all those years of Hawk Harrelson and Steve Stone broadcasts, uh, I think Stone in particular said that you know a guy who throws a slider and curveball might never have the you know feel for the pitch, or at least feel for both pitches on the same day. Like one takes precedent over the other. In that case, he has thrown both really well. And uh, you know, I don't think it's imperative that Cease has both of those things working for him. But I think it's imperative that he has, like, yeah, I assume he'll try to attack the fastball, try to establish that, because most pitchers do. But, uh, you know, like with a good Lucas Giolito, I think the key with Cease is, like, having two ways to succeed. One is, like, you know, having a uh, high 90s fastball that he can throw for strikes and spot on, you know, away from the heart of the zone and make hitters not uh, feel comfortable eliminating, like, the lower half. So there's that. But then, like, if that's not really working for him, or at least if they're turning on his fastball a little bit, waiting for it, you know, to have the curveball, he can go to the pitch backwards. I'd at least like to see him have those options. Maybe he doesn't execute it as uh, as faithfully as he did uh, during uh, the exhibition games. But I think uh, based on what we've seen and, and his ability to, to uh, hit spots in the zone that his mechanics and his overly rotational delivery did not allow him to do last year, I think... Uh, I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, with a sample size of one, he might not look right. But I think by his second start, I think one of them at least should look very promising. Giolito has a tough test against Shane Bieber. 
And he needs to put up zeros, Jim, to give the White Sox a chance. Bieber was outstanding on opening day uh, and really set, you know, put a flag in the ground that he could be a serious contender to win the American League Cy Young and maybe be the guy that is the best starting pitcher in the American League Central after Jose Breos really struggled against the White Sox in opening day. For Giolito, is there an easy fix that you think he can make to not repeat what happened in his last start? Well, you know, maybe for one, he won't have to worry about Cy Young hopes because after a 17.18 ERA after his first start and only 11 starts left, I don't know if you can make up that kind of ground. You know, it's possible, but uh, you'd have to go on quite the terrace. So maybe, you know, not having to worry about, you know, maybe just like getting punched in the face one time and having uh, your numbers more or less ruined for like an excellent breakout season. Maybe that's, you know, just one thing off his mind and, and not having to worry about being perfect. But, you know, part of it was defense. You know, I think even last year, Giolito, if he, when he wobbled, he tend to wobble early and then stabilize. Um, you know, having Larry make two misplays at second base, bobbling a, an automatic double play ball and then not getting an out and, and keeping an inning alive. And basically he should have been out of the inning in 10 pitches, get back to the dugout, rebound and said he had to throw 20 something pitches. I think they almost 30. And that threw his start off the rest of the night. Just better defense, I think, will help, uh, obviously. But I think, you know, just maybe put him in a better rhythm the rest of his start. Uh, I'll be curious to see, you know, and, and right now it's all night games against righties. So I imagine, you know, uh, normally that Rick Renteria would want to go with Yasmani Grandal for all three games. But, you know, based on wanting to rotate McCann in there and based on McCann and Giolito having a, a good working relationship last year, if maybe McCann goes back there just to see if that shakes things up a little bit or if McCann's better at identifying something that uh, Giolito is doing wrong mechanically, um, you know, that maybe Grandall can spot. You know, I think Grandall, you know, based on the what was written about him uh, during the preseasons that, you know, he's done all the work possible in terms of video studying, talking to pitchers about what they do and how to help them improve. But maybe just the, you know, uh, McCann having worked with him, gone to battle with him in regular season games and seeing how Giolito uh, uh, goes wrong or has to make adjustments. Maybe that's something you'll see in that game, McCann getting the start and seeing if that just changes, uh, you know, if he's mechanically off, that uh, McCann is better at getting him back on track or at least more used to it. I do think McCann's going to make a start, but I see him starting on Tuesday with Carlos Rodon. Hmm. I think, I think, yeah, I, I think McCann's going to catch the lefties. I think he's going to catch Rudon, and I think he's going to catch Dallas Keuchel. And I wouldn't be surprised if he catches Keuchel all season long. I know that'll upset a lot of White Sox fans, and I'm not saying this is the right move. This is just my gut saying, my gut feeling that I think McCann's going to catch Rudon and, and Keuchel this year. Yeah, I, I would be surprised the Keuchel just because he needs low strike. And that was one of the weird things about Giolito's start is that Grandal didn't get him the low strike, but... Neither pitcher got that part of the zone. It was really, I think it was Bill Welke behind home plate. And he wasn't really calling anything at the knees. And then you go uh, start forward to Keuchel and both sinker ballers on both sides are getting pitches uh, below the kneecap and just uh, you know creating ground ball heaven. So uh, with a sample size of one for at least those starts, then you have Lopez being hurt in his pitches, not getting to the mitt in the strike zone. You really don't know exactly what kind of impact he could have had there, but at least for the first series uh, where we are seeing the framing receiving part turn on its head a little bit for maybe things, you know, weird strike zones, injured pitchers that, you know, Grandall can't be uh, 
blamed for, but at least for the time being, I I would like to see at least one start with uh, you know early with uh, Grandall catching Keuchel just to see what that looks like strike zone wise. You know maybe McCann is better. That's the other thing is that maybe he can improve. It's not uh, unprecedented or unreasonable for a catcher who's finally you know concentrating for the first time to better understand what he's doing wrong. If it's indeed a simple mechanical fix, other guys like Omar Narvaez can't never, <laughs> they never can get there. And Zach Collins, I think is kind of the same thing, but uh, you know, maybe McCann uh, is one of those catchers who whatever he's doing wrong is a lot easier to correct. And you know, numbers will bear that out. I think one way or another in a couple of weeks. Well, Tuesday and Wednesday, we will be bringing back white Sox wake up calls to recap as far as the Monday and Tuesday game for the white Sox. On Thursday, Jim and I will be streaming live to recap the Cleveland Indians series and preview the upcoming series at Kansas City. But coming up next, it's your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine and also helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at Patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And Jim is here to answer your questions. And Jim, the first question that we have out of the mailbag comes from Twitter from Gukas Leogito. And Gukas is asking, what's the setup of the taxi squad? Do they play only if anyone is injured and will Nick magical be on the taxi squad? Well, right now I think it's three players and one of them has to be a catcher. And James Fegan said that it's going to be a pitcher and a position player and a catcher. And your mean Mercedes, there was, uh, there were reports out of the Dominican. Uh, yeah, early on, at least on, I think the reports broke last night or, uh, Saturday evening saying that he was going to be joining the white Sox and then, I uh, didn't see it corroborated anywhere else since I was waiting for it. Then it turned out that he's going to be part of the taxi squad. So he's part of the White Sox, but not really. At least uh, when it comes to making his major league debut, he's going to be on the outside looking in unless like a roster move is needed. Uh, but yeah, he'll be the catcher, I assume, even if he might not actually be catching when games count. He'll be at least counting as the catcher. When it comes to the other two, I was kind of looking at it. And one, you know, if they need an outfielder, especially like if Jimenez is banged up and they don't like Delmonico or just are at least, you know, uh, don't want to have Leary committed to outfield work the entire time. Uh, maybe that's when they go to Luis Gonzalez, you know, even if he's off the roster because he was the one they turned to uh, in training camp after Luis Basabe uh, went, uh, you know, yeah, I think he went down to Charlotte or Schaumburg or uh, was not participating in the Chicago camp because of a bruised foot. Um then it turned to uh, Gonzalez. And so maybe they turn to him, although they need a roster spot for him. Uh, otherwise, just a whole lot of uninspiring candidates. I don't think it'll be magical just because of the uh, travel part I mentioned earlier and just wanting to him to get timing. Yeah, that they've maintained that they want him to be working and getting at bats and being part of the games and such. And if he's on the taxi squad, he's not getting that. So at least it also makes it very convenient for the White Sox to have to call him up in case... Uh, something breaks and if they want to get that year of service time they're not going to put them in position to do that so i think magical is going to be probably in schaumburg until next week and then we'll see what happens i meant to say with the pitchers um that'll be kind of curious too because 
uh, given that uh, you know they had to use two of their long relief guys, and they don't know what's going to happen with uh, Lopez, and you know, who knows with Rodon how deep he can go into a game. I wonder if that's when Dane Dunning comes back and is just that long relief guy or a possible spot starter if need be. Um, Ian Hamilton was the one guy I saw who's on the roster who might be uh, also a possibility at this point. Well, Kukas, thank you so much for your question. And our next question is a lengthy one. It comes from Mark Hope. And Mark is asking, I think the general consensus for this season was that the White Sox were going to move out of the bottom tier of teams and into the middle tier. And I don't think anyone's realistic expectation is that this team was going to be in the same elite tier competitively as Minnesota. And that seems to have been borne out this weekend. Well, we'll likely know the answer by the end of this upcoming week. Is there anything you saw this weekend that makes you think the White Sox will struggle with teams in the middle competitive tier like Cleveland? No, I I think they'll be, you know, I I think they'll struggle in individual games and and they might have a couple games in a row where you think like, oh, this is just like last year or this is just like the rebuild. They've never left it. But I think they have the firepower and we did see in the opening series that they, you know, especially from the bottom of the order with Larry and McCann going off that uh, they can score from anywhere like we suspected was going to be something different from the previous seasons. Like you don't have to turn it off after the fifth spot. They have offense. They have enough power from the bottom of the order. They have guys who uh, look better at the bottom of the order than they did at the top last year and that can be to their benefit. So I think they're going to be able to look good against middle tier teams. I also think middle tier teams will have their number at times. I, I, they're not quite, um, you know, they're, they're in that, they're, they're in the thick of that middle tier. They're not at the top. I don't think, um, you know, where they're just uh, not elite. They're just, I think average and flawed the way a lot of teams are average and flawed, especially say if uh, COVID-19 cases, you know, uh, either exacerbates the current situation, uh, current situations or take guys out or just, cause stresses that manifest itself in ways that, you know, don't result in players missing games, but just result in them being off. Um, but I think this Cleveland series will tell us if the White Sox are capable of winning a low scoring game uh, <laughs> between the Minnesota offense and some leaky defense like Tim Anderson kind of looked like the Tim Anderson of last year where he uh, bobbled or, or he, he matadored one play to his right on the backhand side and then uh, bobbled a grounder that he should have been able to uh, compose himself a lot more easily on. And then you had Larry with the errors and you had Delmonico missing cutoff men there. Uh, and then, you know, Eloy bumping into the fence and uh, knocking himself out. There are, uh, you know, defensive liabilities on this roster, at least defensive weaknesses. And I, I think they might be liabilities right now just because of rust. Uh, and, and you compound that with the, you know, maybe top heavy rotation, or at least, uh, some rotation flaws or unproven starters. And, you know, you can have cases where even a non-elite Indians offense can score six or seven runs just because between leaky defense and uh, a couple of misplaced pitches to Jose Ramirez or Francisco Lindor or whatnot. So th- that's what's going to be telling me about the series. Maybe they don't win the series and they, uh, uh, you know, just uh, it, it's uninspiring and they go two and four this opening week and, and nobody's happy. But I think if they can at least, you know, hold the Indians to two runs in one game or, you know, not you know, <laughs> get the runs, average runs per game below five rather than giving up double digits every other game. I think that'll be at least an encouraging step towards, you know, being uh, among the more respectable teams, you know, and, and being, you know, 
easily, I think, in that top eight where uh, they are... They, they look like a comfortable postseason team, even if it's a comfortable expanded postseason team and not like the standard five. Yeah, because what have we learned in this, you know, this opening weekend? You know, Toronto, even though they don't have a home, they came to play in that first weekend, uh, especially against Tampa Bay in Tampa Bay. Uh, the Yankees won a very tough series against the Washington Nationals. Boston might be terrible. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, like... They might be bad. Uh, And then in Houston, we're going to find out. We are going to find out the impact of Justin Verlander's injury. Uh, Because that starting rotation now, without Garrett Cole, who obviously left and went to the Yankees, and without Justin Verlander, now you've got, at the end of his career, Zach Greinke leading that rotation. And he really struggled uh, on Sunday. Uh, and then you have Lance McCullers, who's back, who pitched well on Saturday. Um, but th- that Houston rotation all of a sudden has got a lot of question marks. Oakland and uh, Anaheim, they had a very tough series against each other. Uh, Texas also had a tough series against the Colorado Rockies. So in the American League, I mean, I think you can still see where the White Sox are definitely in the top eight as far as teams. But you know, for, you know, back to Mark's question, this middle tier, as far as who the White Sox are going to play this season, that's in the middle tier. I'm assuming you're, you've got Cleveland, obviously, and then what Milwaukee, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and the Cubs. Are we all listing them as in the middle tier as well? Or is someone in the National League Central a tier above middle? Uh, no, I think they're all middle tier. Um, yeah, they're not elite, which uh, I guess in the NL, you know, it's a different case. Yeah, I think the AL is very top heavy, uh, haves and have nots. NL is a bit more egalitarian, so maybe it's a middle class means something a little bit different, but throw the NL, t- NL Central teams into the American League, and I think they are in that middle class. Got it. So, yeah, we're going to, they got five teams that they're playing this season out of nine that are going to be in this middle tier. So I think, I I still think the White Sox could find some success, but I'm with you, Jim. You can't, you cannot give up 27 runs in a series and expect to win that series. Yeah. And, you know, going, thinking back to Hawk Harrelson's, you know, saying that he always said, it's not who you play, it's when you play him. You know, that was, you know, in a lot of cases, like a lot of sayings, you know, it's a gross oversimplification and that you should be able to beat teams. You know, if it's, if, you know, like say with the Royals, if it's, you know, always when you play them, then that means you're not handling your business right. You know, like it's just, you can only apply it so far, but I think in this case, it's going to be when you play them. Uh, just because, uh, you know, teams like, you know, the Reds who should be better than the Tigers, but are just kind of shaken up. And all of a sudden Sunday, your lineups ravaged by some negative COVID tests and just, uh, you know, a case of the Astros when Verlander goes because of, uh, um, you know, an elbow injury that might be, you know, you never know due to rushed, uh, comeback from, you know, or at least a rushed preseason. I could, I could see a bunch of cases where, the specific circumstances of the season lead to rosters being vastly different than you think. You know, when we're when you're doing probable starters and, and evaluating a series coming up, I could see us talking about something on Thursday that's completely moot by Friday afternoon, just based on a a, uh, a battery of test results. So yeah. it's going to be a uh, yeah. I think this opening weekend has shown. Um, just how random at least some chunks of the season are going to be. Well, Mark, 
Very thoughtful question. Thank you so much for it. Our next question comes from Azenrek. And Azenrek has a simpler question. Jim, is it time to get very, very excited about Luis Robert? I would say yes. Um, because he's going to be, you know, he's going to have at bats where he's going to look, you know, over aggressive. And he did, you know, you know chase, a, chase a high fastball here and uh, a slide out of the zone there. And he might have some 0 for 4, 3 strikeout games, like basically the ones everyone Keith Law saw in the minor leagues. He's going to have those games in the majors just because of his profile. But I mean, when he, the, the things, uh, the two things I took away from his opening weekend is like basically all the contact was loud. Uh, four padded balls, uh, four hits were all over 100 miles per hour. So there's that. And then on the other end, like the his play in center field was very easy. You know, gap to gap, uh, getting to spots well, you know, like line drives hit to uh, the right of him, hit to the left of him. He got to the ball in such a way that he was catching the ball behind him. <laughs> like he, he didn't, uh, it wasn't even like full extension. It was just like reverse extension <laughs> like yeah just <laughs> like uh uh the if he, his route was inefficient is because he was getting there too fast or going a step too far um so yeah one way or another he's going to contribute which i think is key like yeah i'm thinking back to yohan makata as a second baseman and uh uh jimenez in the left field to where if they're not hitting they might be a net negative for that month or that week uh just based on their either their physical limitations like in in Eloy's case in left or in the case of Moncada second just like physical um it, like mechanical inconsistency of second base that were in his strengths uh in the case of Robert he's at least going to play defense the same argument we're making for Adam Angle right now or Delmonico is like at least he plays defense the nice thing about Robert is at least he plays defense all the time and when you see how loud his contact is and how he can punish balls and his hitting zone is fairly large in the strike zone like he's not missing much right now uh i at least you know and, and you adjust what your expectations for a rookie season yeah i'm very excited and uh and especially since the competition is probably going to be very uneven this year uh between uh you know covid cases and injuries and just uh uh the lopsided nature of some of the al central and the pirates and the national league uh he could be facing basically the staffs he faced in uh the international league. So there are a lot of ways for him to produce and uh, have an above average season at the plate. And I'm looking forward to seeing how he does it, especially this upcoming series. I could see him struggle because now he's facing better starting pitching quality against Cleveland, especially on Wednesday when he faces Shane Bieber. But if he produces like he did against the twins, against the Indians, I I just think it's going to take that excitement to another level, Jim, where it's like, okay, he can be great against anyone, and this is coming a lot sooner than we were expecting. And I think this opening weekend is by far the best debut we have seen of all this new core White Sox players that have joined the team. Hmm. That's a post idea. Well, there you go. It means a lot better than Aloy uh, Jimenez's opening weekend with the White Sox last year when he was slider to death. Uh, by, by Kansas yeah. City. Tim Anderson had a good debut as far as his opening game. He had a couple of hits, but didn't like not making the impact that Luis Robert did. You know, Yohan Mikata didn't come, you know, screaming out of the gate when he joined the White Sox. Let's not mention Gordon Beckham. I don't want to jinx Luis Robert. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think out of all the new 
core players, if you want to throw in the pitchers, Giolito, Lopez, Kopech, this has been the best debut out of all of them, in my opinion. And he looked great. And he looked like he's been in the major leagues for a while. And he gets himself into some jams down 0-2 in the count. And he finds a way of establishing the ability to make contact to follow off tough pitches and also demonstrating that he's got some patience in him too, to lay off some really tight pitches, especially up in the zone. That seems to be where opposing pitchers, at least the twins wanted to attack. Luis Robert was of course, the sliders away. We expected that, but also fastballs up and in, and he's demonstrated that he can lay off those pitches. So I thought this was a great debut for Luis Robert and white Sox fans should be really pumped. Yeah, you mentioned the walk, and that's another thing I was worried about with Roberts, you know, thinking about all the uh, prospects the White Sox have called up, like, you know, going back to, um, you know, like even Diane Vicieto back then to, you know, Tim Anderson. And uh, I remember Josh Fegley might have had the longest one, just like these career starting walk trouts, like these uh, White Sox, you know, they draft and develop these very aggressive hitters when it comes to the major leagues, like they can't find a walk anywhere. Like even Danny Mendick last year, who uh, was, you know, not a terribly unpatient hitter in the minors, just could not draw a walk until like the last series of the season or maybe the last game or second to last game. I know it was like, I was, I was watching his on-base percentage, like, come on, just, he had some three ball counts, like this is the time and never got it, but he did get a one at the end of the year. And, and to see him get that uh, first walk in the opening series when you know his hitting profile says that he could have gone maybe three or four weeks the way Anderson has gone at a time. Uh, that was very comforting just because, uh, you know, it might not be a habit. Like even Larry Garcia walked, <laughs> uh, you know, early on. And that was uh, you know, something you don't see from him. But, uh, you know, just it, it's nice when a White Sox prospect comes up and his on-base percentage is higher than his batting average in the first few games. I look forward to your post, Jim. To see if I'm right. Thank you. Uh, if if that was the best debut as far as the new core, so my my memory says it is. But as in rec, excellent question. Thank you so much for it, and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. Big thank you to everyone that has followed us on Twitter in the last couple of days, especially with the 2020 season starting. So welcome aboard. And you can also help support Socks Machine at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get additional content on the podcast, additional PO Socks questions answered. When we have other guests come on the show, they get an opportunity to ask guests and the guests answer those questions in a, in a separate version an ad free version of the socks machine podcast. So if you want more content from us and you like what we do, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast. Thank you to our old friend, Matt Lyons for joining the show to give us some insight on the Cleveland Indians for this upcoming series. Again, we have the White Sox wake up calls coming up in the next couple of days to help you recap as far as all the action that happens for the White Sox in Cleveland for this upcoming series. And Jim and I will be back with Sox Machine Live later this week uh, to recap as far as what happens in Cleveland and preview as the White Sox head to Kansas City dreaded dreaded kansas city hopefully the white Sox play much better there in 2020 but again that will do it for this episode of the Sox machine podcast you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts 
And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.